first of all, uh, I want to shout out to my mob, Birupai mob, Gojiigu Nyuranyang, Yinata Grantly Saunders, Yibirupai Barai, Yibarupai Barai. Just want to extend um, my uh, respect to elders past, present and emerging and to all Aboriginal people uh, on the different countries from where they'll be listening to and watching this video uh, podcast, uh, including my very special guest this week, uh, Sam Cook in not our country, but La La Land, which uh, is also uh, indigenous owned or was owned traditionally owned um and so sam welcome to the show uh yeah i'll let you introduce yourself yeah um greetings from tongva country here in uh, los angeles california uh sovereignty is unceded here and i also want to pay my respects to the elders uh past present and emerging thank you tell us a, a little bit about the work you do now yeah, so I'm originally Nigana from the Kimberley uh, in northwestern Australia. I grew up uh, in Broome predominantly, um, but moved to Los Angeles six years ago and came out to really just uh, start to get my tentacles into the entertainment and creative industry over here. So set up my own uh, production company called the KMBA Creative Agency uh, KMBA, just a historical nod to Kiss My Black Arts, which was a name <laughs> yeah. I used quite frequently. So, yeah, so we had a lot of success actually over here. I've been able to work on some of the bigger productions, including uh, one of the most historical ones of recent, which is the grand opening of the Sixth Street Bridge downtown. And that is something that will appear more and more frequently in movie sets and film clips and advertisements, uh, definitely for the Olympics coming up in 2028. I co-produced and did the creative direction for three days of party and opening and then worked with the local communities here to make sure we had a Tongva welcome up front um, before the ribbon cutting and all things American with that, but also then working with... Um, East LA for the lowrider community uh, to be the first people to drive over the bridge and really kind of stamp that community identity. Um, so that's that's a part of what I do. And then I also work uh, here as a US member rep for APRA AMCOS, um, which is also representing Australia and New Zealand. And yeah, they're the kind of two big things that I've been doing. Yeah, it's great work. Um, very impressive. I just um, you you've done a little bit of work I see uh, with Artivist, another uh, native of Australian uh, Maya Jupiter. So you yeah. worked alongside those guys as well. Yeah, yeah. So I got inducted into Artivist Entertainment. I'm the um, unofficial, like unofficially founding, non-founding member, or whatever you want to call me. But I'm like the. I guess the seventh or eighth wheel in mm -hmm. um, the founders group now. So that was a beautiful moment where we all kind of came together and uh, really share a lot of, uh, you know, powerful story and also connection around artivism and what does the artistic creative community lend to activism. Um, and for me, that was important because I'm third generation Aboriginal activist from my mum's side and, um, you know, really take that kind of, very seriously and critically important for community uh, to uplift. Can you tell us a little bit about your mother and her influence? 
Yeah, I'll I'll start with my my nana first. So mm-hmm. Nana was brought up in Beagle Bay Mission in northwestern Australia and you know was really the kind of found foundation of activism in our family before citizenship. She refused to to get the native exemption. Uh, she said this is her country. Um, you know, she, a lot of her oral histories to me were really affirmed in who she was. She absolutely stood her ground as a Nikana elder. Um, and that extended uh, through to my mother, uh, who was very prolific in the um, Aboriginal rights industries in Western Australia, uh, predominantly, and um, was one of the founders of the Aboriginal Medical Centre in Perth, in Borloo, uh, Derbul Yerrigan is now what it's known by, but she was one of the original, I think she was the original nurse, actually. So that was part of my childhood. So I was almost born at the tent embassy uh, up at Parliament House in Perth. Uh, Mum had to make a choice, you know, did she keep fighting or did she go to the hospital and, you know, hospital went one out. So I said, you know, I was kind of born into the protest and then became a, a you know, child of the revolution. And a lot of uh, my upbringing was, you know, the marches, the protests, the waiting around for the meetings um, to end, the playing with all the other kids of, um, you know, the staunch warriors from Western Australia and also nationally. It was really the kind of the magical lens of a a young Aboriginal child growing up in such a really warm but affirmed cultural cauldron of activism or blacktivism, if we want to call it that. Mm-hmm. I like to call it that. Let's get into the subject um, of this episode, which is all about post-referendum, where we had a fairly overwhelming no outcome to the Aboriginal voice to Parliament and uh, a recognition of Aboriginal people in the Constitution. So let's go back uh, leading up to the referendum. Now, under your activist hat, uh, even though you're miles and miles away on the other side of the world, you were very uh, engaged in uh, the lead up to the referendum and, and did a lot of research into how the campaign came about and also into what we've come to know as the progressive no or the progressive Aboriginal no to the referendum. Can you just uh, give us a summary of what you found through your research? Yeah, so it, it um, I would say I was a no before the racist no campaign even came about. Um, in 2014, 2015, uh, I was part of the group who uh, led SOS Black Australia across uh Australia and and the world, we scaled up to over 20 million people in um, five months and, you know, shut down the country uh, as a grassroots movement, uh, not funded by government, not funded by corporates, not funded by mining, but, you know, on on the sweat of community volunteerism and also, you know, real efforts for change. Um, Through that process, I ended up attending the Freedom Freedom Summit uh, in 2015 with Rosalie Kunoth-Monks, who's now passed away, unfortunately, and uh, elders who, you know, were tireless in the game um, and the struggle. And really from that point on, uh, at that time, the Recognise campaign was happening. And we had a lot of conversations about the value of that, um, but also how it was uh, this kind of pervasive um, infiltration by 
a very conservative fringe of at that time who had the ear of government um, for you know a number of decades and were doing very proactive um, discernment as to who was invited to their conversations. Um, you know, Uluru Dialogues, the Yulara Conference, all of that sort of fits into that part of the story. And so um, when Recognise was uh, going ahead, which obviously, as we now know, was, you know, one of the other iterations of Yes 23, um, I was very active in what we called the JPEG Wars, which was to come up with a lot of assets to share bites of information and really start to unpack um, a lot of the information that was being provided uh, by, you know, what in essence was a well-funded propaganda machine and, as we know, over $290 million worth of it. Um, as history shows us, it, it failed spectacularly. Um, again, you know, it wasn't connected back down to the communities necessarily, um, even though it was presented as such. And it was a David and Goliath. It really was the feeling that, you know, here we were up against uh, this formidable, well-funded entity uh, that had all the, you know, visual um real estate in um the public domain and and we were the community trying to speak up so you know full respect to the elders who are now no no longer with us who who led that big charge but um for me that became a really critical moment in my story to be able to hear directly from key leaders in the community about how they saw the treaty movement moving forward and it um, we can talk about that a bit later, but the model is so powerful and so inclusive. Um, and then we arrive at Yes 23, which uh, before I guess it was really branded I, at the time when um, the Prime Minister came out in support and really starting to push before there was a date of the referendum, um, you know, the talk was really about the Karma Langton report. And so I sat down to it, the um, what constantly was referred to as this ex extensive 270 pages um, and I say yeah it was 270 pages but I've worked in publishing so I understand that you can pad something out and a lot of the detail in there was really infographic and layout so it could have been a very much smaller document but what was in there that kept sticking out to me in my research was that this really wasn't a consultation with our people it was um, presented as this. It was based on, um, you know, a poll done by the Crosby Texter campaigners, uh, you know, originally um, suggesting that 80% of the community was in support. And that was really kind of carried up to the echelons of uh, current government who were backing it. And so I went, okay, something's not right here. So I very publicly stood up as a no before anything became, uh, you know, polarised to really you know, race, racist no and uh, yes, 23. Yeah, and yet the progressive no movement oh, that no. you've just explained a great history behind uh, has been ridiculed by a lot of um, our community as, um, you know, supporting the racist no campaign. And I've actually had a friend on Facebook uh, say how disappointed he was in, in me and the way uh, that I chose not to vote. Um, and if I voted, I would have voted no, but I felt like this uh, referendum wasn't about uh, my people. It was really for uh, non-Indigenous people in this country. 
So how did this Yes 23 campaign and the voice to parliament differ in any way to the recognition campaign that was rolled out by the LNP originally? Well, it didn't. Um, It was really just the continuance of that agenda. And I say this and full disclosure, I um, didn't mention my father's side just yet, but he was a former Labor senator, federal senator for 23 years in Hawke and Keating's government before he passed away. Um, So I had a a deep insight into the Labor Party and I come from a very staunch Labor background. So speaking up in opposition of Labor, uh, you know, was a big deal um, for me, but I felt really compelled to do that. And prior to him coming in uh, to the Labor Party, he was the head of the Western Australian Trades and Labor Council. So I had a great insight into the union movements and standing up in opposition to their support of Yes 23 as well wasn't taken lightly. Um, it was done with with a lot of interrogation. And the reason why I did that was because not too many people are really kind of uh, cognizant of the kind of centre-right, far-right of the Labor Party in New South Wales and their takeover, which Albanese is kind of a part of the New South Wales story. And when you start to see you know, what has really been fashioned as the for the people, the Labor Party, the workers being co-opted by this kind of centre-right agenda, moving closer and closer to a very conservative lean in uh, with the uh, Liberal Party almost being indistinguishable in that kind of centrepiece of um, politics, uh, you begin to realise that it's really not who we think it is anymore. The Labor Party really is a shell of its former self And yet we're kind of in an emotional artifact uh, holding space with it to go, yep, it's for the people, but it's not. So I was seeing um, and really kind of unpacking the the known history um, and making sure that the research was there to back it up whenever I stepped forward to say something because I was very aware that, uh, you know, there would be scrutiny. Um, Not that that mattered because I feel like, um, quite often the the people, and similarly, as you mentioned, your friend, uh, immediately when I stood up and said, no, I oppose this because it's not making uh, any sense to the metrics of 9,400 people, 9, people participated in the Karma Lankton report, but of which um, it was a minority of Aboriginal people and it was a majority of non-Indigenous people. And so I was calling um, into question their own documentation Whereas at the time, I think it was kind of the the government's uh, push to say, well, you know, this exists, you can go find it if you want, but, you know, knowing full well that not too many people would really scrutinise it in the way that I did. And, you know, it became a really important point to to know that what we were dealing with was um, a, a deep infiltration by the Liberal Party, the Conservative movements. And then that became very obvious once you started to realise who was actually sitting at the table as directors of Yes 23, who were non-Indigenous people. It was the, you know, director of BHP. It was John Howard's um, advisor, someone who's lauded in the Liberal Party as being one of their most faithful servants. It was Michael Cheney, who, you know, everyone thinks West Farmers is great, but they, you know, this year have been fined $600,000 for one of their mining um uh, investments uh, with toxic waste exposure in the region that they're mining. Um, you've got 
Lachlan Harris, who was kind of a disgraced member of the Labour Party, you've just got this kind of litany of people and, of course, then spearheaded by Mark Texter from Crosby Texter, who was involved in everyone from the Brexit campaign of the UK to uh, Liberal Party who's who in the day. And it wasn't this community-led, well-meaning, for-our-people movement at all. Um, and that became very obvious in the research and it's all there still to this day in the public domain if people ever want to check it. And why do you think this critical analysis that you presented now um, wasn't given a platform? I mean, Lydia Thorpe and others who are in the progressive no uh, movement during this whole process uh, were barely given a platform. Because it became about the polarisation of yes and no. It became a, about racist no and the yes campaign both well funded uh in millions of dollars it became this back and forth in our names uh it became a situation where they were basically employing marketing techniques like poverty porn to to use narratives against uh each other on our behalf and yet when we spoke up as the community members saying well hang on a minute um we were either chastised by the racist nose or chastised by the Yes 23 campaign because we were counter to both of their agendas. And if you actually look at both of their agendas, ultimately they both wanted us in uh, the constitution to be recognised. As Dutton said, he'd make a commitment to um, constitutional recognition only in a new referendum when he comes to parliament. Mm. So then I was like, okay, so why, why are you both wanting this so badly? Why do you want this on our behalf, in our names, when we we didn't ask for it. Yeah, it, to me and a lot of uh, Aboriginal people, it it, it felt like a, a whole stage show. Um, it, you know, the commercial aspect of the S twenty three campaign and the ridiculous no racist no uh, that was uh, given a platform at the same time uh, just seemed like a a, a pantomime. Um, whereas these other articulate, critical voices were just left out of um, the so-called debate. And and you're right, It's a lot of people were saying that the Yes 23 was just a, a, a dressed-up version of the recognition campaign, just another iteration. So, well, here we are now, a week after... Uh, all our leaders, our government-appointed leaders and media-appointed leaders, really, uh, in this country have been in mourning. They've been hiding behind the, their big black holes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the big black, the big black dot. Yeah, the big black dots. <laughs> How did you feel, first of all, about uh, them going into mourning and not reacting immediately? So ironic in that their whole agenda and platform was around a voice for our people and then to be very performative uh, and start to lead people into a, a contrived silence, um, which was really, I, I I kind of thought about it and I thought, you know, is it them assessing who's really still in their camp, who's following their lead? Um, because ultimately a lot of really good, people from our community have been led through their process. And, you know, some people were as formed as they possibly could and other people, as we know, in communities were just being coerced through process about 
lack of understanding. Um, and it was really ultimately just a, you know, like you said, it was, it felt contrived and manufactured. Um, it was very performative and disingenuous, I felt. Um, you know, I, the irony of the big black dot wasn't lost on me through social media. Um, we also, through research um, and contacts, knew that that particular statement, the first one came out, was written by their CEO, Simon Frost, who is a, a white man, former Victorian Liberal Party member, uh, very high up in, in uh, the echelons of the Liberal Party still. And so, you know, whose who's story is being told at that point? Um, and when you look at who was trying to lead that, it was, you know, Aboriginal public servants, Aboriginal political shapeshifters who've been liberal one day, labour the next, liberal one day, labour the next, until, you know, three decades of their tyranny has kind of come to this, this head, um, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing because I know um, Noel Pearson has mentioned on numerous occasions that he intends to stand down and I intend to ask and badger until that happens because, you know, is it another broken promise from Noel? We'll see. But, you know, he's hoping that there is a shift and change um, with this, this kind of co-option of this homogenised pan-Indigenous identity um, that they were kind of throwing around where they were running around the country on everyone's country, speaking over the top of the elders and and really, you know, doing their roadshow to, to backfill their narrative around people supporting yes, because, you know, if you go back to Karma Langton, they didn't have the numbers in their original consultations. Yeah, so, you know, they made the decision. They presented it uh, after the fact, after it was enacted in Parliament uh, to have this uh, referendum. Uh, and then busily tried to get out and then consult Aboriginal people to tell them why they thought it was a great idea. And that, that's that's how it really happened. It is not following our own protocols in in actually consulting elders right across the country. I mean, the Uluru law lawmen who were against uh, the Uluru Statement of the Heart actually using the ter the word Uluru and were also uh, on the no side. So it, it's just a, like it was all back to front and, and I think a lot of non-Indigenous people were completely confused because I think they expected that all Aboriginal people would just be on board. Yeah, and I want to I want to actually spend a little moment interrogating the allyship. Um, you know, living in the United States, I see what uh, allyship looks like over here. It's about holding space and putting the communities whose voices uh, need to go to the front to the front. Um, that didn't happen in Australia. What happened were uh, non-Indigenous people stepping forward, um, fighting people who didn't align with their agenda, speaking on our behalf, um, being quite violent at times in the way in which they conducted their business and, you know, everything from seeing footage of a member of the Yes uh, campaign spat in the face of a no supporter, mm. you know, stuff like that where people really set aside decency and, and their own dignity for what was a really shiny campaign of, you know, multi-million dollar campaign and propaganda machine that they, they actually became more involved in it than we did um, even my, you know, father's family, um, it fractured and destroyed a lot of relationships and it fractured and destroyed family groups. This was not 
uh, a nice situation to have been pushed in from either side. But I think the lesson there for for our um, non-Indigenous allies is they need to really recheck where they sit in the scheme of things. And if ever there's um, true allyship, they would be turning up to the non-shiny community gatherings, the real heart and soul things, death in custody protests and, and you know, fighting for policy shifts and change and holding space for our people to have our voices to the front. Um, because I think that's a big lesson that they need to be hearing as well. Um, it was when I was mentioning that behaviour over here in the US, they could not believe that allies would behave in that way, that they weren't co-conspirators um, with our best interests at heart at all, even though, you know, and they became performative too, everything from the, you know, the songs that were being sung and the the kind of the, the song and dance routines that were scaffolding a lot of these um, public protests. Uh, and you see the absence of Aboriginal community even at those. But when you're being uh, led through, you know, the, the same template really when you start looking at the the way in which the Crosby Texter um, machine works and Mark Texter was at the forefront of the strategy, you'll see that there was a lot of emotional blackmail at the front. You know, quite simply, why don't you want to give Aboriginal people a voice? And so the premise of a lot of that emotional uh, abuse really uh, in the, the foundation of their campaign really led people to make an ethical decision because as it was playing out in the media, it was polarised as a yes and racist no. So, you know, as we've determined, our voices were left out of that and it was going back and forth above our heads almost. When we'd speak up, we would be thrown into the racist no campaign or the racist no would throw us back into the yes campaign. Um, but our voice was never um, enabled to be at their um, discourse. And so, I can see why um, certain, you know, figureheads in our community really stood up passionately um, because of the way in which the construction of Yes 23's campaign from a very um, operational standpoint in terms of key messaging and reinforcing those messages um, made them, you know, have, have a look at and really think about whose side are they on when they didn't really necessarily need to be on either. And that's really what we kind of said at the end of the day was that it wasn't it wasn't this back and forth there was always other voices there was always other ideas in the community and much stronger ideas that um you know when we when we come back all to the table again will be stronger ideas that i'm sure they'll support because they'll see the merit of that as well um but you know we're in a kind of earliest stage of um coming through what has been months and months of this kind of relentless campaigning on both sides where they've really um, polarised people and we have to, you know, almost kind of be a little bit patient with each other so we can come back together and find uh, our inner purpose again and, and run with it. You know, some of the other markers that I wanted to touch on that I saw through their campaign were things like weaponizing fact-checking from white people against Aboriginal movements. Mm. And... I'd not seen that before until this campaign where it really was used against our people. And whenever there was, uh, you know, something that that should have been brought up, it was silenced. Um, you know, things like Marsha Langton, Noel Pearson supported the Northern Territory intervention and were very critical in its implementation. And similarly with the welfare reform until Marsha distanced herself, she was a very big proactive member in shaping 
welfare reform against our people and, you know, is sitting in all sorts of different um, positions of influence and affluence and, you know, but at the same time telling the story of someone who is marginalised and disenfranchised. But, you know, I I dare say that's probably a 60-year-old history. Um, It's not who she is now uh, Mm. necessarily and yet the framing of our people in this way um, was something that was used by the campaign. As I said, it was poverty porn at the end of the day. We were talking about leadership before and the, the Noel Pearsons and the Marcia Langtons have always been the spokespeople or the go-to people by our media and especially through the recognised campaign that was uh, really pushed by the Abbott government. Um, you, We've had government-appointed leaders virtually uh, and media-appointed leaders. So when Noel Pearson and Marcia Langton and the rest of these upwardly mobile, dare I say, elitist Aboriginal leaders um, are mourning uh, the decision and have been threatening uh, to roll over should they? I mean, is it is it time for new leadership and what would that look like? So it's time for them to know that they are not the leadership that any of us necessarily asked for. Um, you know, some people did and we have to recognise that that was, uh, for want of a better word, um, that that was their journey and their story. But, uh, you know, if you were giving our communities across the country uh, the ability to make informed decisions about a voice or a treaty or uh, hear from the communities themselves as to what they actually want and what their needs are in their communities, I think we'd arrive at a different level of leadership. I think there's so many powerful and missed voices um, that, you know, from when Megan Davis, for example, mentioned at the press club that they actively um, excluded Aboriginal people because in their minds they were targeting people who didn't have a voice but then I go well who gave them the authority or the the right to to marginalize some of the most powerful voices from community themselves who have been active in this space and really a force of change for decades before probably even Megan was born um and you know the the kind of disrespect of of even that intention um but you know again performative because the audience of a lot of this uh kind of information was not us it was uh you know non-indigenous australia taking um these uh you know leaders of our community uh forward in in their embrace and and really that's kind of where most of them are staying um i see that we do have to open the channels of communication with them regardless because i think our power of um voice is really in the the spectrum and diversity and then that really starts to disable uh, you know, the prices of the world starts to disable um, the Davis, the Mayo, you know, when Thomas said he was fighting for six years for this and I was like, bro, we've 100 years legacy here. What are you talking about? Like, yeah. I get it when ego leads, but this is cultural continuum and we have to set aside the the difference in the ego and let other voices come to the front um, that know about their community story and don't need it. Um, told on their behalf by people who have got no connection and relationship to it because we need the the sum of all our parts to really move forward 
in the way in which it is, you know, true advance, true cultural, uh, culturally led and intentional um, change and sustaining change. And so when you when you start playing God with everyone else or you start confusing and conflating it with, you know, again, ego-led campaigns, if you will, um, this is, you know, the end result of that, of being uh, very comfortable in the colony versus being uncomfortable about our situation in community. You're starting to talk about solutions now coming from the ground up. And that I, we've been talking about that for a long time, that the solutions aren't uh, from the top down, from, you know, those voices that, uh, you know, have the privilege of of uh, representing us in Canberra. Um, so what do you see? Do you see that the solutions really need to start from a local level, say, if it was treaty, this is what I've been thinking, and I don't know what you f- feel about it, is that in, say, for instance, my little community here in Birupai, we have a local council who is fe- like pretty supportive of uh, our people, our culture, and promoting it. Is there any reason why we cannot like form treaties or agreements, macaratas, whatever you want to call it, between our our nations and the local councils to come up with some sort of solution to becoming more self-determined, to have a share, an equal share or a not an equal share because it can't be an equal share because <laughs> we're such a small proportion of the uh, community, but to have some uh, recognition, but also, you know, some stake in the economy in in our local areas. Absolutely. I mean, there should be uh, those uh, arrangements already in place. There should be economic, because ultimately that's what our um, movements have really suffered um, by not having the, the capacity, um, the economics, it's it's always the volunteer and the, you know, the sweat of, of community that has made the change, but the economics that is outstanding and owing to us as, as Aboriginal people, our economic um, restitution is owing. So there's no reason why it can't start at a local level, but also the, the um, sort of the future forward, uh, if you will, for for the movements was really about having those conversations within your family group, uh, you know, initially with yourself first to really understand who you are. Um, and then, you know, speaking to the younger family members about who they are um, and giving them and instilling them their cultural value, respect and pride and power, because that's the other thing you see in an environment of colonization when people believe that they're disempowered they don't see how powerful they actually are and so Australia is very much a mirror of that by design and structure situation of um, power shifts and so you know speaking at the local level um, building good citizenry with the um, settlers who are here uh, so that they understand that there is a requirement and an understanding of what is required for them um, on our countries, uh, you know, be it in in the way in which they conduct their, themselves on there and access for community members to sacred sites, to whatever it is at the local level that really shifts the narrative and the paradigm away from, um, you know, colonial, colonial settler racism and um, that uh, 
unbalanced uh, sense of power because we've always had power. We just haven't used it in the way in which um, we we should, I feel. And then where the treaty movement was really moving toward was the federal treaty, not with the, the constitution of the Commonwealth of uh, Australia, it was with the Republic of the uh, New Australia that we co-author altogether uh, a constitution that reflects all of our interests and takes it away from, you know, the white supremacy dynamic of the constitution. It takes it away from this manufactured identity of what Australia is and starts to plug in the actual diversity and spectrum of what Australia is. But that can only really happen in a new republic uh, where there's that disconnect from the monarchy, disconnect from the Commonwealth. And, you know, it's a shift that's happening worldwide. It's not unique to only us. Um, the Commonwealth countries, former Commonwealth countries are really rising up and we're a part of that story, yet we're not as connected as we should be. So it's really about understanding our power at a local level, um, loving and valuing our family and community at that level, the people around that who form the greater kind of circle of community, speaking in our nations, speaking as nations, um, moving forward uh, to where hopefully we'll have, you know, the first ever truly um, representative uh, gathering of all our nations. And mm. we all get a voice to, to, you know, say our piece and, and share that time with each other so that it's not just, uh, you know, a couple of, like you said, media appointed or government appointed individuals, that it is a closed forum of Aboriginal people across Australia um, sitting together and working this out. Um, that was the vision that is not uh, unique to me. It was a vision that was hold, held by individuals such as Dean Collard, as Rosalie Kunoff monks as countless others. And that's what we were working on before it kept getting derailed by recognised and derailed by Yes 23. And, and, you know, the reason for that is it takes time when you have no resources to be able to build the capacity to do that. And we were mapping out the logistics of how this could happen, where it could happen. Um, and we're going to get there. It's just people have to believe that sometimes it's going to just take us to move that machine forward and not the government to move that machine forward because mm. we have to treaty with government. Otherwise, they're in a legal you know, institution as they presently are and exist in Australia. Yeah, we jokingly talked about having a treaty with sitting down at the table with King Charles um, III because it's unfinished business from the monarchy where we are still part of the Commonwealth after all. Do you see that as a, a viable a solution to actually look at a treaty between sovereign peoples rather than a treaty between sovereign and an illegal entity called Australia? I think if we shift uh, and look a little bit differently about who our um, collective force is uh, internationally and it becomes less important about King Charles then it's about stopping the current um, exploitation of our lands with um, their their interests and, and uh, looking about how we rebuild our economic powers as nations because it, you know, again, you look at these campaigns, these kind of um, shiny campaigns that have just sucked up multi-millions of dollars and nothing's changed on the ground in communities. And it's a very indulgent, um, you know, 
mechanism to want to do that to our people, but at the same time claim that it's for our people because physically and economically there could have been a difference in the plight of how people are living in, in a basic in a basic way often, you know, access to clean water and electricity and, and um, giving people their dignity and, and right to stand up as, um, you know, proud Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people around this country. Exactly. And the no campaign scaremongering around a Labour Party, you know, moving the, uh, Australia into the trap of uh, treaty and the same sort of uh, scaremongering that came about through native title where non-Indigenous people in this country believed that, you know, their land would be taken off them, their houses would be, you know, taken from them. But there is crown land that's being converted into national parks that we should really have a stake in. And going back to local solutions, having some royalty from the resources, um, even uh, land taxes, uh, water rates, everything that is derived, all anything economic that's derived from, you know, this land and our waters uh, that were taken from us, uh, we should have some equity in that, yeah? And, and why, yeah. why would that be seen as something scary and unfair? And the thing is, it is possible um, and it doesn't have to impact people's current quality of life. Um, there's already taxes that are uh, ascertained um, through, you know, government mechanisms, the ATO, that could be apportioned uh, to our people. Um, there's no reason why that can't not already happen. Uh, in the same ways, there was never any reason why an advisory committee could never not happen, mm. you know. So so yeah. there's um, there's definite mechanisms that, that exist that we should be written into, not written out of, because when people are worried about their land being taken or, you know, their their assets and interests um, being reduced, drill back down through that and our land was taken and our assets were taken. So, you know, whose story are we telling here? And in, if we're going to be in equity and fairness uh, and an inclusive Australia moving forward with the Republic, then it has to reflect new dealings and not old archaic um, you know systems that have no relevance even in the 21st century because Australia really um, by impeding that progress is holding itself back as its true potential as a nation and that one is where first nations are first. It seems to be the right way to go but we're, we're looking at Dutton is threatening to bring this uh, a referendum on um, recognising Aboriginal people in the constitution. And is this a real push towards uh, nullifying our sovereignty by doing this, by enshrining Aboriginal people in the constitution? I, I, I can't get away from the idea that that is what it is because you've got mining companies uh, supporting this wholeheartedly with lots and lots of money. I cannot see them supporting a referendum on an agreement between Aboriginal people and the government where we have some equity, some stake in the economy in this country. That's, that's what I feel. I feel like this is a real push towards negating our sovereignty. What What is your um, feeling on that or thoughts on that? In terms of... Uh 
you know, forcing us into the constitution, there was always that concern. And when I, I kept raising the issue of acquiescence and Galar Anderson and um, Michael Mansell were doing the same thing, they would never take it off the table. And I, I, I kind of understood that not too many people knew what that even meant, but in a, you know, like land framework, if someone's been there long enough and shows that they've, um, you know, invested into the property uh, in terms of land, uh, and you know you're showing cooperation in that that land can be taken as theirs and so it's hidden in plain sight I feel because they never wanted to remove that off the table I said you know I would maybe consider um, conceding on this if that was gone but no one ever said that it would never not be a concern and it should be a concern for everybody because you sign up to a, an illegal constitution and make it appear as if you're a part of and willing to cooperate with that illegal constitution, you you validate that and legitimize the structural system of it, um, which disempowers your right to your own cultural entitlement and um, you know all the legacy of of colonization that goes with that. And and you relinquish your power. You you remain subservient to to those mechanisms and systems versus um, you know holding your authority in the way in which is our cultural right and entitlement. So. I, I feel very similar to you in that. I feel like there uh, wasn't enough assurance that acquiescence in particular, um, because they then, uh, whenever you would bring up sovereignty, they would be like, your sovereignty is okay. But I'd be like, okay, so what about this? And then there would be no, it would be, you know, deferred conversation or just completely ignored or overlooked, or then, you know, you all support best price and Peter Dutton anyway. So there was never, there was never a real um conversation to be had and also then what are the protections within the constitution that would stop this being perceived in an international court as if we were laying down arms um on our land and handing it over i, I felt you know that there was just a, a conglomerate of non-aboriginal people and aboriginal people who were just positivists just really into the idea of let's say yes for Aboriginal people, it seems like the right thing to do, but not unpacking, looking at what we were actually about to sign up to. And when you say protections, the government was completely protected from, you know, having any substantial contribution to the way in which Aboriginal people would be governed or Aboriginal affairs. And in Australia today, we're celebrating uh, Teachers' Day. Now, as a teacher myself, as a lecturer in Aboriginal Studies, my experience has been uh, since 2013 when I started um, working as a casual academic and teaching this course. And in that introductory, you know, the first week, I, I would go around the room and ask everyone, these students who had just come out of high school and some other mature age students, uh, what was your experience with Aboriginal education to this point? And it was just such a broad spectrum of, of experiences from a school that really embraced history, warts and all, to schools that did not teach a thing, even though the syllabus has been around since the late 80s, to be taught in, in every aspect of the curriculum. Uh, there are schools that are just not teaching it at all and and they justify this by saying 
well, there's no Aboriginal students at the school. Or there are teachers that just don't know how to teach it. They complain that they don't have enough pre-service um, training or in-service training. Um, they believe they don't have enough resources, even though we've got NITV and a, a bunch of other, you know, uh, written uh, material out there. Or, or just don't want to teach it because they feel, you know, they don't want to impart any guilt on onto their white students and have their students go home to their parents and tell them, you know, what they just learned today and have them complain. <laughs> it's like, that's what's really been evident throughout this thing is that people don't have enough background to understand why Aboriginal people didn't want to come to the party. So that aspect of the Uluru Statement, truth-telling, from my point of view, I feel like that needs to be critical now. We need to put pressure on our school principals. And, and let's talk about that today when we're celebrating Teachers' Day. It, it's time to take responsibility, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's across the board. I feel like uh, truth-telling isn't something we should be waiting for the government to determine and shape when we can tell the truth. We just go ahead and do it. Um, and the shifts that need to come are really with, you know, probably um, what I see over here, which I know they're trying to dismantle with the uh, government structures here around the affirmative actions within um, teaching environments. And so, you know, it becomes important when you hold space for the, the right uh, voices from the Aboriginal community to come in and tell these stories and um, you know the curricula that has been there from the 80s is compulsory learning uh, it's not an elective or something that you just bring out on NAIDOC week or or what have you it's actually required as part of um, you know the education structure and mechanism within Australia and Australia's you know to the world is behind in a lot of that because it again is by design by policy by structure by um white supremacy still being you know the the master narrative of, of australia in its dynamic um and people assimilating into the idea of of that um nationhood of this broader australian identity which lacks the depth to really reconcile even their own history of how they came to be in the country you know, it's it's always um, romanticised, but it was as ugly for them as it was for us coming out um, to, to, you know, observe their presence. And so it's a lot of truth-telling across the board. Um, and I think it starts with us just doing it. Um, mm. we, don't have to, we don't have to wait for anything. Again, that's kind of the shift and balance of, of understanding our power, um, you know, as who we are as First Nations people. What do you see is now the next steps? Like from coming out of the referendum with that, what was a very disappointing outcome for many uh, Australians, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and perhaps uh, a great outcome for some, some of us feeling not really happy either way. What do we need to do now? What do our leaders need to do? What do we need to do? Because I know there are non-Indigenous people who are allies, friends of mine, who who really want to continue um, supporting us and but just want that guidance, want to know what the next steps are, what we want, what we actually want. 
Yeah, so I heard that a lot um, post the referendum from almost the day after it, as if we all of a sudden we're going to just jump in on this massive budget to be able to fill the void of, um, you know, a loss. But I think the first thing we have to recognise is um, the trauma that people are living through having experienced uh, Yes 23's loss um, because it was peddled on a bed of hope. And, you know, that is a commodity that people take for granted, but hope is often one of the kind of major drivers where people feel like, you know, a change is going to come. It's a break in, um, you know, this this long-standing apartheid movement of oppression and, and racism in the country. And so when you're peddling false hope to people, there's a real casualty of that. And it's, you know, the mental health within our community, the, the trauma that it's, uh, uh, you know, brought up in the um, individuals and families and, and groups to that. So I think we have to really um, centre on supporting our people, um, no matter what their position was across this. Uh, you know, I want to say hug it out, but sometimes it's just about acknowledging and recognising um, that it's okay to have uh, different opinions on things. Uh, it doesn't change who we are because we're a dynamic um, group of nations trying to figure this out um, in our best possible way within, you know, all the uh, limitations of um, being in uh, a colon colonised uh, environment. And, um, you know, next steps are really the coming together. In terms of the allies, I think they need to uh, acknowledge and do a bit of soul searching. The good ones I could, you know, put on one hand uh, who I had in my um corner through the system um the others really need to understand and and go go google this shit like if you don't know what holding space is go and look it up because you did such a bad job at that um and that's not a true ally that's someone who is performative and fashions themselves to a cause and are they going to be around to the real work that needs to be done i'm not sure um but for people who you know, again, as allies and fell into that trap because it was by design from a, you know, Crosby Texter campaign handbook uh, in terms of the strategy. And we know that that's divisive and we know that it causes a lot of um, friction within community groups uh, and broader community groups, not just our own. So um, understand that what we've all lived through is a real lived experience of trauma um of uh you know false hope and um you know ego-led agendas uh that were counter to who we are as first nations people in this country um and our future steps forward are really that we have to bring ourselves back together i think we should give ourselves a bloody time out for a second because the trauma of all of this it wasn't lost on me over here either like i was going through it just with the rest of mob back home um like we just give us a tap out for you know a couple of weeks please before we kick off again um i i know that you know our hardest frontline uh, warriors are already um bringing people back together and i think that's a beautiful thing to see and i know that in my own social networks it's bringing our friendships back together and really um you know being present for each other in a way that i think now just um puts more reality towards who we all are and the depth of where we are. And that's important too, to recognize that. I think um, 
so I, I see that once uh, the dust has settled, um, you know, the um, campaign, as I believe in their um, statement after their um, seven-day um, mourning was about that they're going to continue. Um, I would hope that uh, if that's the case, um, there better be a line of communication with the rest of the communities that they walked away from um, so that they can hear it. You know, truth-telling is needed in that environment. Um, and if we're going to hold it up as, as a benchmark for everyone else to hear, let's start within our own people um, and learn from that, not, not it just be used to reprimand everyone, to actually learn and grow as the reasons why that hurt a lot of people and why it's really marginalised people even more who don't have any um, you know, anything to fall back on. There's no plan B for a lot of our community as it is, um, you know, with leaders of this campaign weren't suffering financially or, um, you know, within their position in community. So it's it's okay to be all of that and everything. But when you, when you start to use people's story as your own, um, you know, that's when we need to to pull up the the horses and go, okay, let's, let's, time out, regroup, we're going to have to thrash this out, we're going to have to walk away, come back, walk away, come back, but at the end of the day, we're going to actually have to force ourselves to to listen and deep listen and then action. Yes. Yeah, that's Beautiful. The truth will set you free, peoples, and we need to come back together. Okay, so let's have some time out. But let's come back together, regroup, and listen to intelligent voices like this one. I mean, I was told, like I saw a, a Facebook post uh, the other day saying, I don't forgive you. you. You, I was never convinced by the Progressive No campaign. You're all a bunch of dumb C's. Mm -hmm. Well, here we go. Uh, really? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. We've had some really intelligent people on this show for this um, first uh, series of Deadly Dangerous Voices. And I hope you, you know, take the time to uh, search these people out because there are many of us who, you know, are critical and critical thinkers and uh, have some knowledge to share. And I think that is uh, the crux of it. We really need to get to the truth really need to understand where we're coming from before we can, you know, give the country um, the right to make decisions about our people. Yeah, we, we've always had the power and mm -hmm. we need to we need to sit with that and understand what our power is because let's go. <laughs> exactly. Let's go power. Power to the people.